0: And the teens can be dismissed at this time. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. Now the last time we were in Revelation, we saw the little book, we saw the mighty angel, and we saw what they represented. Today we're going to see the plans for the third temple, the temple that stands, that doesn't stand right now on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but will there was two temples prior, but they both got destroyed. Uh, by, one was by the Romans in 70 AD, and one was by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. So now there's, there's no temple on the Temple Mount, except we have the Muslim shrine, which is the Dome of the Rock. But the Bible tells us that there will be plans for a third temple, and we're also going to see how God's two witnesses in this particular uh, scripture are part of God's end times uh, timetable. Verse 1, chapter 11. Then I, and that's the Apostle John, was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. What is significant about this? Well, John is being told to rise and measure the temple. And at the time, in John's revelation, circa 91, 92, 93 AD, there is no temple. It doesn't exist. The Romans destroyed it in 70 AD and hasn't been there since. In our... Now, I'm going to try to help you out here because even when I studied it, I had to kind of get my bearings because prophecy is interesting. Prophecy, God speaks to the prophet. God sees outside of the time domain. He looks down and he's eternal. So we see in order... What I just said five minutes ago was the past. Right now I'm in the present, which is going to be the past. And what I'm going to do five minutes from now is going to be the future, which eventually will be the past. Okay? You got that? I'm supposed to be helping you, not confusing you more. But in our near future, okay, what's going to happen is we're going to talk about the present, 2008. We're going to talk about the past. And then we're also going to speak about the future ahead of 2008 that we don't know but God knows. So I'm going to try to help make that clear. The third temple in our near future will be erected. The Bible says so. Again, my uncle was over for Christmas and he's not really a believer and he said, how's that possible? The Dome of the Rock is there now. It's a good question. Dr. Asher Kaufman and other um, you know, learned-minded people who know the scripture have said that the true temple area, the Holy of Holies, right, is significantly north of the Dome of the Rock, which makes it very interesting. See, To get the exact, um, where the Holy of Holies was, the most sacred place, back then, you know, God didn't tell Moses to put a marker in here, and by GPS we'll always find it. So it's a little bit difficult. Uh, So there's a challenge there. And as a matter of fact, after 70 AD, the Jews, if you know your history, revolted against Rome again, circa 132 AD, called the Bar Kochba revolt. This was a man who rose up, he was a false messiah, a lot of Jews followed him, and they revolted against Rome. Rome finally had enough. They, just, they massacred many of Jews. And then they pretty much, they didn't have cats back then, but they bulldozed the best they could. The whole Temple Mount area started building over it. And now there's where the confusion lies. Where is the temple supposed to stand? In the future, the anti-Semitic, Antichrist, this man who's going to be a great political leader in the world's eyes, will make a false peace with Israel. He'll get the Muslims to allow another temple to be built again, and lull the Jews into a false sense of security so he can attack them. Daniel 9, 27. Now, we're going back 530 years. Daniel 9, 27, one verse, the prophet Daniel from the angel says this, Then he or the Antichrist shall confirm a covenant or an agreement with many or Israel for one week or a Shabuah, which is a seven-year period of years. But in the middle of the week in the three-and-a-half-year mark, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That's what the Jews did in the temple. They sacrificed to God. They gave him offerings. It was a holy place. And the wing on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So there's going to be a point where the Antichrist will not only break his covenant with the Jews, but he's going to enter the temple and exalt himself as God. He's going to receive worship. And Israel is going to look at him and go pretty much, uh-oh, we made a mistake in putting our weight behind this guy. He's nuts. He's inspired by Satan. Okay? Jesus, in Matthew twenty-four, fifteen reiterates this. When you see the abomination of desolation present himself into the temple, flee. If you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. Get out of there. Because from that point on, he's going to break his covenant with Israel, and he's going to use all the world's might and military and attack Israel. So this is what the future holds, unfortunately. Ezekiel 40, 41, and 42, written 2,500 years ago, also speaks of a future temple. There's a lot of similarities between what we just read and the prophet Ezekiel. He says that there, not only will there be a temple, there'll be a wall surrounding the temple. Very interesting. Back then, people would say, why would there be a wall surrounding the temple? Because we know that today, the benefit of, of, of present-day understanding, the Dome of the Rock is there. What it tells us that is that that there will be, it appears to be, a wall between the Muslim shrine and the Jewish temple. There's a wall dividing it. And the Bible says in Ezekiel that there'll be a wall separating the holy from the profane. Very interesting, isn't it? A lot of clues from the Old Testament. Now, let's go back to verse 2 in Revelation. This is a further bolstering with this whole out-of-court understanding. See, the temple, there was a building, and then there was the court of Israel, there was the court of the women, and it was like concentric circles. The courts would get bigger and bigger, and then there would be the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court, the last, furthest place from the center of the temple. And the the, the Gentiles, if they weren't pure Jews, had to worship there. They couldn't come any further into those concentric circles. So what he's saying in in, uh, Revelation is that don't measure the out of court because it's going to be given to the Gentiles, and it'll be trod in this three-and-a-half-year year period. The Gentiles will, will constantly go back and forth and trod this area underfoot. What's interesting is if there is truly a wall, that will be the Muslim area or anybody else who's a non-Jew. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I know it's a little hard to grasp, but the more you meditate on it and understand what's going on and see things in light of our present day, it's fascinating. Paul also said in 2 Thessalonians 2, along with Jesus and the Apostle John, speaks of a rebuilt temple and the Antichrist defiling it or profaning it. Now, understand time periods. Seven-year tribulation period, just as a seven-year period. In Hebrew, the word was shabuah, which means seven, but it's similar to our English word decade, which means ten, but we understand ten to be decade to be a ten-year period. So the shabuah was a seven-year period, all right? Um, it's divided into two parts, the first three and a half years and the seven three and a half years. The first part is bad, the last part is even worse. The last part is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob was also another name for Israel. Jeremiah 30 tells us that that period will be the time of the worst anti-Semitism that the world has ever seen, even worse than we've seen in the last two centuries. Now, this period of seven years... Or three and a half years is going to be said in different ways sometimes it'll be said 42 months equals three and a half years sometimes it'll say three and a half years sometimes it'll say a times time and half a time which was also known as three and a half years depending on which book and which prophet you were listening to but it's all basically the same thing and sometimes it'll say 1260 days which based on the old calendar is three and a half years I just want to get all that set just for fun If you think this is kind of wacky or crazy or very outlandish, go on your computer, okay, not now, and type this in, templeinstitute.org. One word, templeinstitute.org. And what comes up is a group that's based in Jerusalem that they've already, this group has already manufactured and copied the artifacts of the old temple based on what Moses, uh, the, the parameters and dimensions that Moses gave in the Old Testament. You know, the shovels, the lavers, you know, all the different uh, stands for the candelabra. These people have duplicated probably 90% of, of the artifacts. They've also trained priests. They're training priests right now. They're getting ready for the temple, all right? They've also, I believe that they have in their possession a red heifer, which is basically a cow with some type of genetic issue that only comes around every so many hundreds of years or a thousand years. Every once in a while, get a bunch of white and black cows, and then boom, there's a red cow. Now, the red heifer is significant because in the Old Testament, it would be sacrificed, it would be burned, and the ashes would be mixed with a solution, and it would be used to purify the uh, artifacts. So, again, you might think I'm wacky, and maybe in some ways I am, but if you look at it and you really do your homework, you can see that the world is already setting itself up for this temple. Now, the only thing we need are the plans to go ahead. They need the okay from the government to start building it, because the the military, they they know that there's trouble in that area and they chase the Jews away if they try to do something like that. So this Antichrist will come on the scene in our near future and he will make this covenant with Israel, lull them into a false sense of security and the temple will be built according to the scripture. Verse 3 And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. God's two special witnesses will come in a very difficult time for the world, especially for God's people. These witnesses will speak forth God's word for three and a half years. What's interesting about these two witnesses? Well, number one, they're clothed in sackcloth. What's sackcloth? It was a rough material that in the Bible times they would put it on, and it was a sign of, of mourning or sorrow or repentance. These two witnesses will have a John the Baptist type of fire and brimstone preaching to a very decadent world. Two olive trees and two lampstands, the Bible says they are. If you know your scripture well, something's going to click. Zechariah 4, 500 BC, God's prophet Zechariah. At that time, the, um, it was a vision that the prophet Zechariah got, and it was used to encourage these two men, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor, they were going back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Way back when, after the Babylonians destroyed it, okay, that first rebuilding, and what happened was God looked at these two men as his two olive trees, in that they assisted the Lord in building this temple, and the uh, the, the the trees would have pipes. This is the vision: would have pipes coming from them, and they would fill this candelabra that had reservoirs on the top with this olive oil, and the light would stay burning. Now, in the Old Testament. One of the articles in the temple was the stand with the candelabra, and the priests were to come in twice a day and refill the oil, okay, make sure there was enough oil, because the oil would burn day and night. And that was a picture of God's light. That was a picture of God's presence always being there. So it always had to be burning. Now, this picture is, again, this Old Testament allusion, is, the, is Joshua and Zerubbabel going back in the spirit of the Lord, helping to rebuild the temple, and the flames of fire would be the eyes of the Lord, according to the Old Testament. Now let's fast forward to what we're reading today. It's another, this, I forget the name of it, there's a technical theological term, but there's another name for something that's prophesied and comes to pass once, twice, or three times, right? Almost to great uh, similar detail. In the book that we're reading now, these two witnesses right now in Revelation 11 are also imbued by the Holy Spirit to do this great feat. And um, this was a picture of a revival, something great that was happening, a new work. I want to read one verse from Zechariah. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Zechariah 4.6, many of you are familiar with this. God says this, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The application is whether you're in Zechariah's day and a new work is being done, or you're in our future with these two, these two prophets, these two witnesses, or today, there's nothing we can do if we're not doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We better make sure when we go to do something and we put God's name on top of it and say because we're Christian, that we don't do it in our own strength, that we do it in the strength of the Lord and His Spirit. And I've been on both sides and I certainly know the difference. You know we could get so caught up be, with being a christian and it's just what you do you know you go out you feed the poor you do this you do that and if you're not doing it with the spirit of god kind of reminds me of a cartoon remember the Roadrunner? runner <laughs> wiley coyote right well the Roadrunner was always outsmarting wiley coyote and you know if he's chasing him and the road runner gets away and wiley coyote is still running and he ends up running off the cliff and you know he's going for a while you know in this in a pattern And then all of a sudden he looks down and he goes, pew, right? And he he hits the ground. Sometimes we can do that. That rock, that cliff, that support is God. It's by God's spirit. But sometimes we almost say to the Lord, if not overtly, I got it from here. I can do this. And we're running and we're running off that cliff and then all of a sudden we get exhausted or we get burnt out or we get depressed or we get discouraged, right? Who hasn't that happened to? It happens. It's because... We're forgetting about the Lord. And it's not that we pray every day, we want to read something every day, we want to have Christian fellowship, because we have to. It's because he sustains us. It's not by might. It's not by by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's something important to remember. So who are these two guys? Well, let's read on. Verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Use your minds. Think about the Old Testament. Okay? The message is so important that it must be delivered. These witnesses have supernatural powers over the earth's inhabitants. Let's look at these powers because if we're going to figure out who these guys are, let's look at their MO, their modus operandi, right? Fire from heaven and drought. Sounds like the book of Kings to me, both of them. Sounds like Elijah, the prophet Elijah, remember? Elijah's up on the mountain. The the wicked king sends a captain with 50 of Israel's fighting forces and he says... The captain says, man of God, come down from that mountain. The king wants to see you. And Elijah goes, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you. (laughs) They're all gone. The next captain comes with 50 men and says, man of God, come down from that mountain. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. (laughs) They're gone. The last captain goes up and goes, Elijah, you know, this is okay. We can talk about this. Let's negotiate. I have a family. They love me. No. I don't know what he said, but he was very nice to Elijah and said, please come down, and Elijah came down. He didn't threaten him. So we see that in the prophet Elijah, he had this power to bring fire from heaven. You you saw the fire from heaven came down at Mount Carmel and lit up the sacrifice, and many other instances. As a matter of fact, James and John, when they walked with Jesus, they wanted to try out that fire thing and said, Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven on these people? He goes, you don't know what manner of person you are. You don't know what manner of spirit you are. So we look at Elijah, right? And then the drought. Elijah was able to shut the heavens so that there would be no rain for punishment and corrective measure to the land of Israel. Let's go to the next group of uh, things that are happening here. They have power over the waters to turn in the blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. That sounds like Exodus. It sounds like Moses, right? The water, to blood, the plagues. Again, I'm leading the witness. I'm I'm (laughs) telling you what I think it is and I may not be right, but I'm just building a case here. I like to use evidence. Both Moses and Elijah were at Christ's transfiguration. Both had mountaintop victories, and both delivered the people from bondage. Uh, Moses had more of a physical delivery of the people from Egypt, and Elijah had uh, more of maybe a spiritual delivery out of the decadence of that time period. And there's a lot of different things that we can look at. Some believe it can't be Moses and Elijah. One of them has to be Enoch because Hebrews 20, 9.27 says it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And Enoch and Elijah were both taken into heaven. They never died. According to the scripture, Moses went up to the mountain and he died and God buried him. But what negates that is the fact that Moses appears at the transfiguration, all right? So, you know, it's, it's interesting conjecture. Obviously, my prejudice is towards Moses and Elijah, that's where I'm, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But again, whether it was Moses or Elijah or the two witnesses, they had ministries. And their ministries were corrective, they were sobering, they were punitive, they produced repentance. Some ask, why does God allow crime and suffering and hunger and oppression and dictatorship? Well, there will come a day when the Lord's patience has run out. He's very patient. But even the Bible says that eventually there'll be a time where He's had enough. And he will once again punish a rebellious and sinful world. Now, I wouldn't want to be in that place when that's happening. I wouldn't want to be in this book of Revelation. And according to the scripture, if you're in Christ, you don't have to be. There's nobody in the world who has to suffer these judgments, who has to suffer this type of ministry uh, you know, on the receiving end of it. But you know, many of us are, are stubborn, and even as Christians, we're still stubborn but many will not come to Christ. They refuse. They can see all the evidence laid out and still say, I'm not interested. I want to live my life. And that's the sad part of free will. Verse 7. Now when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. This beast, again, we're going to see the beast come up a few times. And knowing the rest of the book, we understand this, pe- this beast is the Antichrist. So the Antichrist, synonymous with the beast, synonymous with this man, who's just a man, great political leader, but he's possessed with the power of demonic entities willingly. You know, how many people have sold their souls for success or fame or something like that? Probably more than we can imagine. If you look at... Um, trying to think it was just in my head a biblical how many biblical characters oh Balaam Balaam was actually a prophet of God and had great potential as a prophet of God but King Balak offered him money loads of money and Balaam sold his soul basically to follow Balak now here's God speaking with him talking with him and he leaves the comfort and the security of God because of Balak's riches he wanted it all now so this man this and any politician probably could do it today and make make a, a deal with the devil sell his soul you know that cliche so that he could be great and powerful i want to be like any i want to be better than any politician i want to be loved by masses of people i want everything that comes out of my, my lips and my tongues to be golden everything i say is perfect nobody can attack me because i'm teflon this man will do that and he will become great there'll be a great transformation in this man and he will be great in the world's eyes what's interesting is Everything Satan does is a counterfeit to what God does. You see, Jesus worked with the Spirit on earth to do amazing things, right? He he had the Spirit. And the Antichrist, as a man, is counterfeit, right? Counterfeit Christ. He'll work with the Spirit of Satan to do great works according to those who are left on the earth. It's fun to look at. As long as I'm not here, it's fun. When their testimony is finished, the witnesses will be killed and their gravitas and the fame of the Antichrist now automatically be bolstered. Because these people are a nag. These witnesses are a nag to the earth. They want to live in rebellion, and these two are are, are a a part of God that actually dwell on the earth doing the Lord's bidding, and it's just an irritant to the world. And they're going to be thrilled when the beast finally overcomes them, and he's just going to shoot up to stardom. Some say that these two witnesses, and I like to put different um, ideas in here, some say the two witnesses represent the church, And the rapture, therefore, it's a mid-trib rapture. I think that's a stretch because Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Satan would try and try and try like the wolf huffing and puffing on the pig's brick house. And you know what? It wasn't going to come down. So I don't believe this is a picture of the church because Satan will not be able to prevail against the church. In in our near future, God will rapture his church and they will be intact in, in his place in heaven having the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay. So I just want you to take heart to know one thing that's interesting about this is these two guys were, were invincible, really invincible, until they were finished doing God's will. So the plan is to pray to God, what is my will to do it, and then really procrastinate so nothing can happen to you. just want to see if you're awake. Of course not. But our prayer should be, how can I serve the Lord? Lord, what is it that you'll have me do? Everybody here, you're all individuals. I'm looking at you all individually. God has something for every one of you to do. He's given you a gift. If you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, he's also given you spiritual gifts. Some of you may not know what those gifts are yet. But you know what? In prayer, and time, and study of the word, you'll get to know. You may be a pastor, future pastor, a counselor, um, a missionary. God knows, literally. So our, pra- our prayer should be, Lord, what is it? How can I serve you? How can I be a part of this exciting ministry? The city is Jerusalem. It says basically that it's spiritually Sodom and Egypt, which are in two different places on the map, uh, where our Lord was crucified. Our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem, so it's Jerusalem. What he's saying is that spiritually it has become like Sodom. Sodom had all types of debauchery and immorality before they were judged. And Egypt was uh, entrenched in idolatry. This is the fate of Jerusalem. This is the fate of Jerusalem. It's going to be so bad. It's going to be so corrupt and so decadent at some point in time. And at the same time, there's going to be a great revival. You know, sort of a paradox going on at the same time. Uh, and even Jerusalem, it's getting pretty bad. There was, uh, as law enforcement, still in law enforcement, I'm privy to certain briefs that the common person isn't. And once we'll look at terrorism, then we'll look at... Uh, human trafficking, and there's human trafficking going on in that area of the world, and uh, they find that some of the best clients for these women, prostitutes or whatever, is uh, the Orthodox Jews of Jerusalem. Pretty sad, isn't it? By day, oh, the Sabbath, and they wear the clothes. Listen, not all of them, obviously. I'm not painting with a broad brush, but some of their best clients are preaching and What's the difference? I mean, it happens here too, right? They're preaching, they, they set an example, and by night they leave their families under the cover of darkness and they're being with prostitutes. So God sees. You know, we don't see. Everything looks good on the surface. Everything looks great. But God sees the hearts of all men. He knows what we do in the darkness. So it's pretty bad, and Jerusalem's going to get worse. Re, verse 9. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So this is sort of a twisted, perverted Christmas celebration. Uh, God's prophets are able to be killed, and everyone's rejoicing. So so weird, isn't it, how, how the people of the earth, God's loving creation, could turn on him like that, Let me read three verses from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. There are some that want to say, Hey, great, God, you created me, that's wonderful. Now go away, beat it. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And this is what's going to happen. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. In any culture, a denial of a proper burial is a sign of contempt and humiliation for the deceased. And they're going to leave these guys out to pretty much rot in the open sun and, you know, whatever happens when you die. And it said that they were glad that these, these uh, witnesses were gone because they tormented the people of the earth. Now, some may read that who don't know the Bible and say, well, I don't want to follow a God who torments people. That's ridiculous. Remember, God doesn't torment those who repent and turn from their sins and come to him. He's forgotten it. Jesus already paid for it on the cross. This is a society where the world is in open rebellion. Even when you talk about Jesus today, sometimes your words are an offense to others. You ever try to witness to somebody, and they diss, they squirm, and they get uncomfortable, and they change the subject? You could talk about witchcraft and weird stuff, you know? And they're like, oh, yeah, that works for you. That's great. You start talking about Jesus, and people get all, like, weird, you know? And you can start to see the uncomfortable uh, action. Their demeanor starts to change. Because even God's words to those who are in open rebellion, it's it's an offense to them. Verse 11. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. That's pretty amazing. So the prophets come back to life and go back to heaven from whence they came. I like to use my imagination. I just can picture the camera crews out there, and everybody's out there with the cameras. Bob, Bob, turn on the camera, are you getting this? Look, they're they're coming back to life. Oh, look, they're going up to heaven. So it's gonna really blow the minds of those who see this. And the Bible's clear. The whole world is going to see this event. And what I find amazing is, do you realize, in all the age of man, this has only been made possible in the last century? Think about this. A hundred years ago, people would have said, how could all the world see this at the same time? That's stupid. See, the Bible doesn't make any sense. Well, man's been around for thousands of years, and you know, in the last century, we've had satellite technology. How could you see one thing on the map and the whole world on the other side of the world? How could they see that? Well, we have satellites now. Bing, the signals bounce. Bing, 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 all over the place. You could literally, in the jungles of Africa, all right, and the technology's there, you can set up your little portable suitcase and open it up and there's a TV and a radar dish, and they have the technology now. Wherever you are in the world, as long as you can hook into a satellite, you could see any event happening anywhere on the Earth. So, right? So, this is, we live in exciting times because I remember, I listened to Christians from years ago, you know, 100 years, 50 years, and they're talking about how, you know, World War II could be the end. It wasn't the end. There are things that couldn't happen back then because the technology wasn't there. But now we live in an age where it's limitless. Anything can happen. The image of the beast, holographs now, um, you know, icons, uh, speaking things, robots. The Japanese have these robots now that it actually can start to move smoothly. It's pretty amazing. Only in this only in this time period, I, I find that fascinating. Verse 13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, seven thousand men were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Whoa, that's pretty heavy. Uh, verse 13. So some gave glory to God and repented and counted or counted among the faithful. What I find cool about this is there's always a remnant. And God's desire is always for prodigals to come back. And The great thing is, in this book, you just pull from all other scriptures. Scripture backs up scripture. The more you know about the entire Bible, the more revelation really comes to life. What did Jesus say about the parable of the 99 sheep? Well, there was 100 sheep, and one decided to go off and, you know, get lost. And the shepherd has 99 sheep there. And he he could have said, ah, 1%, not a big deal. 99 out of 100 ain't bad. Take good care of them. But what does the shepherd do? He takes... The 99, he keeps them secure, and he goes out and he looks for that one last sheep. Where is the sheep? Where is that sheep? Look through the thickets. Look in the wolf's den. i got to find that sheep. And how does he rejoice when he finds that last sheep? And that's a picture of God. He could have 99% of the world that are his, and that 1% he'll still look for them. He doesn't say, oh, I've had enough. I've, I've had enough children. I don't need any more. So I just want to say, personally, if you're here and, I don't know, you wandered into this church and you're really getting an eyeful or an earful, something you've never seen before, you're a prodigal. You've walked away from the Lord or you never knew the Lord. I didn't grow up knowing the Lord. He came to me later in life. And the Lord is calling you. I'm telling you, if you don't know the Lord, the Lord is calling you through this message. Be that 100 sheep because you're holding the rest of us up for the rapture to come. But it's, you know, again, it's a paradox, it's an enigma that much of this book is about judgment, but I also see much of this book is about God's desire for repentance. God takes no pleasure in judgment. He doesn't, he's not gleeful about judgment, he has to do it. God is perfect, God is righteous, God is holy. What, what, what will we say about a God who just allows things to happen? It's like that, that criminal that does something so heinous and they get off on a technicality. Oh, you get so frustrated with the television, how could that happen? God's not like that. God is a God of justice. But he takes no pleasure in judgment. He does, however, take pleasure in repentance. And if that's speaking to you today, today, that's something you need to think about. Verse 15. The last few verses. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms, or alternate translation, the kingdom of this world have or has become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And I'll explain that and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. If you're with us every Sunday, or if you miss a Sunday, I don't take attendance, but please get it on the website. It doesn't cost anything. You're going to be lost if we get three quarters of the way through this book, and you haven't gotten Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. So just click on this website, get a free download. And, you know, you're going to see a lot of uh, repetitive themes here. God really wants us to understand this book. So the trumpet is sounded. And again, it's very important. An alternate translation says the kingdom has become. Why? Because all kingdoms of the earth, I talked about the one world government, the, we already see the one world banking system. It's already in place. They don't want another crash where the United States affects Russia, affects Asia. You know, everybody's freaking out because the United States screwed something up. Okay? It's not going to happen like that anymore. There's checks and balances. It's going to be the one world banking system. It's going to be the one world government. So in the old ages, you know, you had your, 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 your flag, you had your kingdom, you had your delineation, you had your troops on the border. Now what's going to happen is with technology, we're all a, a global community, and the Antichrist is going to unite all the kingdoms under one kingdom, and guess what? He's going to be the king. So the kingdom has come. They're unified under Satan. Since mankind forfeited it, it's changing. Now it's, excuse me, the song here is that it's changing hands. As you, as you look through Revelation, you see it goes from tragedy to triumph. You see that it goes from in man's hands, Satan's hands, to God's hands. And this is the transition where it's, you know, God's ready to, to rock, he's ready to rock and roll, he's ready to get in there, he's ready to take it back. It's almost like you put up that sign on the store that says under new management. And the 24 elders are thrilled. They're representative of the church. They're falling on their face. They're singing a new song. Great, Lord, you're finally taking this back. And that's one of the mysteries. The mystery is why does God let oppression and unfairness and all that kind of stuff happen for so long? Well, he is long-suffering. He has his ways. He has his reasons, and we'll understand all that in good time. But they burst burst forth into praise uh, based on what the seventh trumpet holds. Remember, there was seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We were in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Bam, now the seventh trumpet is sounded. I'm just going to read the rest of Psalm 2. The first part of it was, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? Why do the kings of the earth... Get you know, align themselves against God and try to break his bonds. And now the rest of it, starting with verse 4, I'll read it rather quickly. He who sits in the heaven shall laugh. Pfft, they're all going to line up against me. Come on. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and stress distress them in his deep displeasure. Quote, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare to thee, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten or established you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You, the Messiah, the Christ, shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. It would do, still, even after all this rebelliousness, it would do you well, kings of the earth, leaders, to serve the Lord with fear. Turn, repent, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, or it was a way of an act of homage or submission, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. In verse 18, part of the song is that the nations were angry with you, Lord, but now it's your turn to be angry with them because of their debauchery and wickedness and rebellion. In verse 19, it says the temple uh, and the ark speaks about Hebrews 9.23 in the New Testament tells us that pretty much Moses had a, a, you know, a bunch of plans God gave him. Make the Ark of the Covenant. Make the candelabra. Build the temple like this. And it had to be exactly the way God said. Because everything that was on earth was a, a copy of what was perfected in heaven. So you'll see some of these articles that you might have recognized from the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's in heaven. There's a, there's a copy going on there. And maybe this points to God's presence being duplicated on the earth. As God's people, we have a hunger and a thirst and a desire for an even closer relationship with our God. And if you're like me, his presence here. I'm tired of (laughs) New Jersey so corrupt, you know. I'm tired of these politicians taking our money and, you know, just filling their pockets, uh, you know, stuffing their accounts and just not caring about the people. I can't wait for a day where God's kingdom is brought to the earth and that we can finally have somebody who's going to rule us righteously and have fair laws and, and fair rules, right? The fact is, we live in an evil world and the world is increasingly aligning itself against God, as we read in Psalm 2. If you're like me, you look for a day when the yoke of secularism, perversions, lack of justice is thrown off, and the Lord steps in to rule us righteously. The further we go into Revelation, and I said this before, we go from a book that seems mostly tragic to mostly triumph, and there's an acquiescence there from one to the other. And I believe in our lifetimes we'll also see that take place. All we can say is, thy kingdom come, Lord, thy will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.